Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hi, everybody. I'm Tressie McMillan-Cottom, the co-host with Roxanne Gay of Here to Slay from Luminary. We have an excerpt from this week's show that we'd love to share with you. I recently spoke with Kiara Allegria Hudes about translating the musical In the Heights to the big screen and also about her beautiful new memoir, Broken Language. If you want to hear more, you can listen to the whole episode by going to luminary.link slash slay. Right now, I'm like, I'm, my body is still metabolizing the fact that this very, very personal narrative called My Broken Language is out in the world. And mm -hmm. what does that mean? So I'm still going through my own personal process. And what is it like? I don't know that a lot of people understand how vulnerable it is to write a memoir and to talk about your life or some segment of your life in such intimate ways. So what has it been like having this book in the hands of readers? Part of it has been amazing. And because the book is about my quartification or, you know, that there's so many different elements that went into the making of, of what I observed during my life. And so it's interesting seeing which elements readers pick up on in particular. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not ones I would have necessarily thought. Like, for instance, there's, there's a short passage, it's less than a page, on the history of coerced sterilization in Puerto Rico. One day, Mom saw a small scratch on Abuela's belly she had never noticed before. ¿Qué es esto? Ah, la operación. The operation. That's how Mom learned of sterilization abuse in her hometown, Arecibo. My abuela was one of many to um, receive this coerced procedure. I've heard from so many people. They want to talk more about that history. So I'm, I'm writing a piece on that right now. Um, another one about just, I used to correct my mom's English because it was my first language mm. and it was her second language. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a chapter in the book. It's very short. And it's about me looking back on all of those times I corrected her English. When mom said obnoxious, it rhymed with precocious. Precocious, obnoxious. When mom said Home Depot, it rhymed with teapot. Teapot, Home Depot. When mom said realm, it rhymed with stay calm. Stay calm, realm. I corrected her in the car. I corrected her in the living room. No cash register or playground was too public to fix her blunder. And being like, wait a second. This is her English. She earned it. And she mm -hmm. taught it to me. You know, so it's kind of mm -hmm. my apology to her. And that's one a lot of people have connected with and told me their own stories of language history as first-generation English speakers, wherever they're from. So that part's amazing. And then there's other parts that are more challenging because it is so personal. And I am writing about our resiliency as a community, but that therefore means that there are things very hard that we survived. And that sort of pain, you know, it, it's dur set during the AIDS crisis, it's set during the crack cocaine crisis. And 
those pains don't go away with time. You know, we mm-hmm. might forget about it for a decade or so, but bring it up again and it still hurts and it's still there. When you sort of look at those wounds and the the scars that they leave, it can linger in, in some unexpected ways. And it's interesting that you brought up the chapter about correcting your mom's English, because that was one of the chapters that resonated the most mm-hmm. with me as the child of immigrants and thinking about it's not that we corrected my parents, but we used to tease them. Yeah. And, and even now we still do, like we imitate them and we do it pitch perfectly mm-hmm. and, and we adore and respect them. But it certainly, it just gave me pause and it just made me think about the magnitude of what they did. Yes. They came here without knowing the language and they, they raised a family. They had careers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, where do we get off? It's so Sometimes impressive, look back right? At us, Everything that they accomplished like, and dared Now to that I know how hard it is to learn another language as an adult, <laughs> you know, and, and think mm-hmm. that they did it at such young ages is, is remarkable to me. And, and it gave me pause and sort of made me rethink, you know, the ways in which my brothers and I used to tease my my parents because like oh my god they were amazing she never once said fuck you child stop colonizing my ass but she never changed her pronunciation either we went to home depot a lot so she was definitely asserting her right of mispronunciation i saw the movie in the heights and i really loved it it was so exuberant and joyful and I am a fan of the musical as well. Actually, it's one of my favorites. And so to see the translation work so well was remarkable. And one of the things I was thinking about as I watched the musical was the way in which you updated it to talk about undocumented Americans Mm -hmm. and the pressures that that has, especially on uh, immigrant and Latinx communities. And so why did you make that choice to bring that narrative into In the Heights? You know, people have a kind of instinct that it was because of the last presidency. But actually, I started working on the adaptation for the screenplay before his presidency, while Mm -hmm. Obama was still in office. And um, deportations hit a real fever pitch during Obama's presidency. Then when Trump was elected into office, not only did those continue to rise, but the rhetoric surrounding them was so diabolical. And Mm -hmm. once family separation began... It just felt like, you know, I mean, we're, we're just so proactively building this nation on the suffering of particular communities that I had to address it. I mean, I'm, I'm telling stories. I'm telling the stories mm-hmm. of my community. So here we are. What was it like translating from the book of the musical into this movie? <laughs> One of the things that struck me was, oh, there are some real changes here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of my favorite songs didn't make it. But at the same time, the show still felt complete and it felt like its own thing. But how did you feel about having to cut some of those characters and songs? Um, and was that partly to serve the story or did you just think, OK, this movie can only be so long? It was it was definitely both. I mean, I cut some of my favorite songs too. So, you know, it was hard for me and and one of my favorite characters too. So these were not cuts I made because I was like, oh, I can finally cut this element I don't like. No, it was much more strategic in terms of how do we focus. One of the challenges of In the Heights is it's about a community, which means there's a lot of lead characters. So how to focus that in a way that a movie requires because of close-ups, because it's a medium that looks at faces in a much more intimate way, 
I, I wanted to narrow the focus a little bit more and the plot a little bit more. And then there's another kind of technical thing, and this is really for like writing wonks, and uh, which is go on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I started to wonder, well, why is why am I bored during this song when I'm working on the screenplay in a way that the stage play, I was never bored during a particular song. So why would that change for the screenplay? And what I realized is, oh, this is about a personal revelation that can happen in a 10 second close-up of an actor's face on screen. You don't get that on stage. You actually have to sing that revelation. And so some Mm -hmm. of it is just how the medium of a camera changes um, storytelling. So that was a little bit of trial and error. Something like Everything I Know, which is Nina's big 11 o'clock number song, which is not in the movie. Every time we tried, it just felt like the camera had already done that work. So it didn't, yes. it didn't have that drive the way it does mm-hmm. on, on the stage. Paula Vogel told you, your Spanish is broken, then write in your broken Spanish. What did that permission do for you and your writing? That was big. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, 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 Paula, you don't get it. Like, I, I should be ashamed of that. I am mm-hmm. inauthentic. I am not good enough. But then I started realizing it's like, Everything was broken. It was like breakdancing, broken windows, policing. Like, this is actually the story of my life in West Philly. Like, the sidewalk cracks were broken. The buildings were broken. Like, if my language was broken, too, she was right. I, that was my landscape, and I could harness it and turn it into mm-hmm. something full of narrative um, and full of point of view. And so, actually, her giving me that sort of linguistic permission went much broader and deeper than just that because it was giving me permission to actually claim my brokenness as Mm -hmm. part of my authenticity. And seeing, I think, that brokenness as an asset rather than a liability, as something, I think, to build from rather than to repair, uh, which I noticed both in the memoir and also in the theater that you write, not only in The Heights, but um, Miss You Like Hell which was such an interesting musical because it's rare that you see people who are as flawed on the stage. Mm. You know, like so many musicals are like at the end, really sort of cheerful and (laughs) joyful. (laughs) And it's always interesting to see a musical that challenges some of that and just shows like, here's a woman who's made some mistakes, but she's still going to try and sort of do this act of reclamation with her child. Where did the story for Miss You Like Hell come from? The story is about a mixed documentation family. Um, So there's a mother who is not documented. She was born in Mexico, came to the United States uh, in her teen, in her late teens. And her daughter was born here. Um, so her daughter's a U.S. citizen. And then they, uh, her parents separated and her father got custody. So she's actually estranged from her mother. And as, as her mother is going through her documentation process, hopefully, she reaches out to her daughter who is in crisis. She's my negative space. She's my hole in the the echoing empty of a motherless girl in all of the ways she is a ghost Sundays. But I remember Saturdays, her weekend visit, the way she scooped me in her arms. Time seemed infinite, our silly little dances and how we'd sway the night 
nonsense rhymes we'd love to say. I buried my face into her skin and breathed her in. Can it happen again? Uh, and, and where that story came from was a very personal place because my parents separated and that was an excruciating time for me emotionally, mm-hmm. especially since they were from two different cultures all of a sudden, like, my selves split in a, in a very immediate way, an infrastructural way. So that's the personal spot. And then the, you know, the, the more kind of political context that it came from was my mom used to work in the community, bringing, trying to get better health outcomes for Latino moms. And mm-hmm. because infant mortality was really at, a, had abysmal rates um, and, and continues to um, in the Latino community in the Black community and in other communities uh, that are under-resourced and that have difficult histories with the medical establishment. So I would kind of be in the car, like I didn't really have a babysitter, so I'd just be in the car while she would be driving to meet gynecologists or meet, you know, migrant mushroom farmers outside of Philadelphia. And I would, I was privy to some of the fears of these undocumented mothers about having children and worried that if they went to the hospital and had a safe delivery, that they faced deportation. This was decades ago. And so when mm-hmm. when these stories kind of pivoted back into mainstream headlines, I felt a personal connection. Um, I also felt a responsibility as a member of the Latin American community that is born into citizenship. You know, I, I felt a certain um, a responsibility to use my platform to um, invite in a broader conversation about our Latin American brothers and sisters who aren't born into citizenship. You can listen to the full episode and hear other great conversations we have been having over on Here to Slay. You do that by going to luminary.link slash slay. Not dot com, luminary.link slash slay. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.